call this series Raise Life. What does it mean to raise life in a culture of death? And so what I'd like you to do, the text won't be on the screen, um, but I'd like you, uh, we do this as a sort of a reverence um, for the beauty and truth that we find in scriptures to stand for the reading of the word. When I'm done, here, go ahead and stand up. When I'm done with the verse, you can, I'll simply say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with thanks be to God. This is going to be awesome. Who let the wild donkey go free? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was in Job. What did you say? Do you know who let the wild donkey go free, by the way? Anybody know? Who let the wild donkey go free? Anyone know? Same guys who let the dogs out. Oh! <laughs> I even test drove that joke, and every person was like, that's bad. Do not say that up front. <laughs> Which, anybody who knows me is like an invitation to like, oh, that's what, that's always going to do it. <laughs> who, who let the wild donkey out? Mm, 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 mm. That doesn't work. Let the dogs out. I'm going to stop. Raising life in a culture of death. Uh, We go through this series and we we kind of look at some subjects in scripture of what it means to be resurrection people, which sounds really over the top. But we have this fundamental belief as Christians that literally someone rose from the dead And that this is an inauguration of heaven beginning to break in in this world. That the Messiah, the one who would rescue and put back, put everything back together. And so the scripture uses these words like um, at the the renewal of all things, uh, at the restoration of all things. We're told that Jesus is making all things new. The texts that have to do with like what will happen at the end of time are all about restoration, renewal, reconciliation. And in fact, the one place where you get this fire imagery, it's important to note that in scripture, the fire imagery is always about refinement. It's not about destruction. It's about burning away the stuff that's not good. The Bible begins with original blessing. You've heard about original sin? Yeah, the Bible actually begins with original blessing. You are, a ble- you are blessed, you are made in the image of God. God made the world and God made you and he said it was good. This is our story, the beginning of our narrative. It begins with a poem with this ancient beautiful Hebrew language describing with this like rhythmic sense that everything God made is good. And then the end is God restoring, renewing, reconciling, put everything back together. Any idea about God or the scripture that doesn't have a value for the world that we have in front of us, the tangible physical, that kind of demeans the human existence that says we can do whatever we would like with the world around us is actually not resurrection language. It's actually not Easter people language. It's not people who are taking part in renewing all things. Any of you ever had like a theology, a way of understanding God or scripture that involved God like kind of blowing this whole thing up and we just got to get everybody into the life raft as quick as possible because the ship's going down. Anyone ever had that 
that idea kind of baked into them or, or thought from a distance. This is what Christians kind of believe, this weird like Armageddon thing. But actually at the end, it's about refinement. It's about restoration. Anyone like watch HGTV? Anyone love those shows, right, where they're like taking the, destruct, the, the house that's in ruins and they're what? They're restoring it and putting it back together. All right, I love those stories, those shows, mostly because I go, wow, it's so great that some people feel called to do that. I lean over to my wife, who's like, wouldn't it be great to do that one day? I'm like, it would be great to hire some people to do that one day. <laughs> Amen. I, I, I love that stuff. I'd love to have time to do that stuff. But I feel like if I just say this in front of 300 of my closest friends, this will, anyway. Um, I love this, right? So because when you're restoring a house or you're renewing a house, you're putting the pieces back together, what are you not doing? To, like, there's something about the frame there's something about the foundation. There's something about the things that actually exist there in the house that are what? Solid, good, savable, right? These shows on HGTV aren't great because they're like, we just go around demolishing homes and then building new ones, right? What kind of like the narrative underneath all that is like, wow, look how bad this is, but the bones of this thing or the, the reality of kind of what's there, what used to be there, former glory, that we were putting it all back together. To be Easter people in a Good Friday world, to raise life in a culture of death, is to have a culture of renewal and restoration that is obviously central, is what God is doing in renewing us and reconciling us to the Father. Obviously, we then take part, it says in 1 Corinthians, in the reconciliation, uh, the ministry of reconciliation, where we're bringing together those that have been separated, Jew and Gentile. All the walls are coming down, and God is bringing everyone back together. We get to participate in renewing and restoring that which is good. And so shalom, which is this uh, ancient Hebrew word that is arguably the most central word in the scripture, you can make a really strong argument. This is sort of like what, what, what the whole thing is in some way about. It is about peace with God. Jesus has come and made peace between us and God. Peace with each other, reconciling with each other. And, and there's an internal reality of shalom, of inner healing. God's putting us back together. And then there's actually this fourth dimension it actually is right out of the beginning of the scripture, which is reconciling us with creation. And so today, I want to make the case uh, in a very pithy and silly way to simply say that God's green. That God actually cares about what we do with our environment. And though I would bet that there are like 90% of people in the room would go, oh, okay, cool, yeah, I should care for the environment more, I should recycle more. Um, this isn't, especially in our, I think in our culture and this, the demographic of most of the folks in this church, we're all sort of like, yeah, we should do a little bit more of that. Uh, this isn't like a crisis sermon, like let's talk about how bad the world is and how like you should feel really guilty for not recycling more. Though, you know, if that's a side benefit of this talk. Just kidding. But I, I want us to recognize the deep spiritual reality that actually plays a big part in how we see ourselves, how we see others and how we see God that we see actually reflected in these accounts about how God sees creation. And so for those of you who sometimes have a hard time with talks that, um, that have sort of um, aspects like, like pictures, like picture one, picture two, picture three, picture four, and getting a sense of, well, this is how God sees me. Uh, this is what it means to 
act in response to that. Um, you're going to, I think, love this talk. I think for those that have a hard time with that, with these pictures, um, my, my invitation for you is to focus on a couple words as we go forward. One is God is a pleasure, pl- the word pleasure. God is a pleasure seeker. God is a God of joy. I want to focus the word good. The phrase original blessing. I want to start where the scriptures start instead of starting where so many start the Christian story. In the beginning, God made the world and he said it was good. And he got to us and he said, very good. This is, this, this is our story. We're made in the image of God. And though we are marred and cracked and as Paul says, all fall short of the glory of God. This is where the story begins. So, This is where the story begins. So a lot of people like to start when they talk about the environment, when they talk about creation, they love to start in Psalm 119. Uh, Some people like to start right in Genesis. Uh, You get one of the second commandment is actually a sanctity of life one, like flourishing and and seeing things come to life and come to life and seeing life be sustainable. Some people like to go to Revelation and talk about the new heavens and the new earth. I like to go to Job 38. Some people are like, what? what does that mean? Job 38. The, uh, a little bit of background. Job uh, is having a rough day, to put it lightly. Things are not going well. He's got friends that are coming alongside him that aren't giving him the best advice. And um, he's sort of just complaining about his circumstances. And God responds. Right? I mean, to put it just really bluntly, this is God just comes to him and he's gone through a rough patch. Friends are meeting with him. God enters. Um, and God is going to question Job, which is a kind of a tough place to be in. Having God question you. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you shall come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. He ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Job being like, oh, this is not going well. That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out. The earth takes shape like clay under seal. Under seal it features, stands out like those of a garment. It goes on talking about the springs of the sea. Um, do, you, uh, do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Uh, my favorite again, who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it to the wasteland, its home, the salt flats, its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. We get talking about oxes, threshing floors. Uh, This is my favorite one. Uh, The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare to the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them and some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. 
She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Poor ostrich, right? This is the God of the universe being like, not the brightest bird. God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. If you ever need like a life verse, just let it be that one. <laughs> What's your life verse? God did not endow her with wisdom and give her a share of good sense. Amazing. And, and then it goes on though, right? This is like one dumb animal, but then it takes off. Did, um, yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. She laughs, when she, but when she runs, she laughs at horse and rider. What are some of the things that are coming to mind as you're reading this? Besides like this really bizarre interaction, God's being sarcastic, God has a womb. Like there, there's all this like feminine imagery, right? That we don't normally read in the scripture. There's all of this life and joy and creation bursting forth from just this account here. God it seems not have a point to a lot of it. It's like, where were you when this happened? Where were you when this happened is sort of the overarching story. Him trying to give Job a little bit of perspective. Hey, you, there's a bigger thing going on in the world. And were you there? Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. But in the midst of his trust me, trust me, trust me is like, have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen this? This thing, this bird is so dumb, but when it runs, awesome. There's an interesting lack of pragmatism in parts of creation. Have you considered the ostrich? Like, let me tell you. I think there's something in here of like God loving the, I don't know if this is the appropriate word or not, but randomness of creation. God seems to love that just, just there's a joy. Uh, Job, Job 40, um, verse 15. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. A lot of people think this was probably like an elephant or a hippo. What, what strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly. Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron, heavy metal. It ranks first among the works of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring it their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. I will not fail to speak of the behemoth's legs. Right? There's like stuff about a, like probably a crocodile he gets to when you get to the Leviathan. A lot of like, I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of honor? Uh, it talks about like um, uh, who, who can like tie a, a, a leash basically to the Leviathan. Like you're like, God, what are you talking about? It's like late night, like Pink Floyd session with God. Like what is going? Like God takes great joy in physical creation. Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen? I will talk and talk and talk and talk about the joy. Turn with me um, to Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8, I'm gonna start in verse four. If you have your Bibles out, Proverbs 8. Again, I'm gonna argue God's primary posture toward creation is not production, but pleasure. God's primary posture towards creation is not production, but pleasure. One other way to think of this is not consumption, but celebration. 
I, I like to think of God as being like, I will not fail to go on and on and on and on. Some of us struggle with seeing everything through the lens of pragmatism, right? Struggle with seeing everything through the lens of what does it do and how does it work and how will it. And we see God just being like, have you ever just seen that? Have you considered that, right? Whenever we get those passages, like consider, later on in scripture, consider the lilies. You can learn something from those lilies. They're just there being lilies, being awesome. Be there. Take care. Take a load off. We get really uncomfortable when we start talking about this because it doesn't sound hard enough. I think for a lot of us in our culture, we have a really hard time stopping and enjoying and pushing the smile through sometimes. I will not fail to go on and on and on. Proverbs 8, verse 4. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest the wickedness. So this is the personification in Proverbs is, is wisdom. So personified in a female voice, she, the wisdom, is speaking to us about what it means to be wise, showing us what wisdom truly looks like. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, says in verse 13. And then jump ahead to verse 22. So this is the posture. This is what wisdom looks like. This is what it is to be wise, to be aligned with the way of God. And then it says in verse 22, the Lord brought me forth as the first of its works. So wisdom is there from the beginning before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, Right, wisdom is making a case of what's at like the center of everything, where like wisdom comes from. It's this poetic, mysterious language. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in humankind. Delighting in humankind. Wisdom is personified and we have a God who makes things and loves the world and the words that are used, just to be clear, are delight, are delight and rejoicing. God rejoices over us, it says in scripture. The posture of God Toward creation, I want to humbly submit to you, is pleasure, not production, and celebration, not consumption. First question is, have you seen them? Have you seen them? Have you considered this? Have you seen them? Have you looked at how that thing moves in the world? Um, flowers are, are, are fascinating to me. Uh, in this regard, if we really were to pull back and think about, we hand people, like we, we take a flower and then we kill it and then we bring it to somebody and then we give it to them and we say, look at the dead thing I have for you. I just freshly killed. 
right? It's like if you kind of pull it out of flowers to most other things, it gets, starts to get a little weird. Um, there are moments when you come across things in creation that are just there and you're just being fully present to take them in, right? Like we don't, like when you send flowers, you don't say, um, I don't know, like, oh, thank you. What, what do they do? Someone gives you flowers. The first question is not, interesting, what should I use these for? You sort of, we intuitively know. I'm going to put them in a vase. Vase, put them in a vase. Do we put flowers in vases at Sanctuary or in vases? Vases? Wow. Good for us. There's no, the pretension in the room just took a dive. That's really good for us. Way to go, Sanctuary. Amen. <laughs> We just, we know to look at them. We know to look at them. We just, we, we, we cut the flowers and we, we give them to somebody because look, these are just beautiful and I wanted you to, to see them. I wanted you to see them. A painter will spend hours painting a field of flowers and most of us don't ask why. Why are you choosing that subject matter? We just know why. God loves creation simply because it is. And, and this is where I think it has some interesting relationships to how we see the world and see ourselves. I, I would argue, I think you'd agree, one of the deepest longings, if not the deepest longing of the human heart is to know that we are embraced and accepted as we are. To know that we're embraced and accepted as we are. That beneath all of the shattered vision and dreams, beneath all of the jacked up biology, beneath all of the hurt and struggle that we see around us and that we find in us, to know that there is something inherently good and beautiful about who we are. And what happened in our culture recently in particular, everyone is a unique and, and beautiful snowflake. So what happens is this narrative that's really good in certain quad, like sections of culture get like amplified to the lens of it's like not sober-minded and baked in the reality that like, yeah, we choose death all the time, that we are in need of a, of a savior and a healer. But then there's this other side of things that often sometimes emerges in the ugliness of religion or in the ugliness of very, very like utilitarian worldviews, which is to say it's all just going to hell in a handbasket. You are, like, really, when you get down to it, inherently, like, evil. And we just need to be clear. I don't know where you come from or what story you would attach yourself to about the way the world is, what it means to be alive, what happens after we die, what we need or don't need. But the Christian story, we have to be clear, begins with you are made in the image of God. And that our job as followers of Jesus, in part, which comes from making disciples, making people who are walking the way of Jesus, is to join with God in putting it back together, which starts with us, which starts with God renewing us, which moves to God healing our own heart, which means to us taking part in renewing and restoring the broken systems around us. And part of that has to do with being people who are good stewards of creation. And people who have a posture of joy and rest and party. And party about the good creation that's all around us. One way that we reclaim 
the goodness of creation is that we should be the best partiers in the world. I don't understand why that has become something that's sort of like, oh, be careful with that. I mean, we talked about this last week, a resurrection culture with the person of Zacchaeus are people who are willing to go and celebrate with those that are most hurting and furthest away from God and like the oppressors in the system themselves. We can go and be a part of extending the words of salvation and grace, that God is someone as he works through the early church. In the first week we talked about the church is these riot makers, like everywhere they go, they were disrupting the story because they were people speaking of a different king and a different world breaking forth in the midst of this one. And so all we talk about this week is we are people, we should be people, Easter people are people who are to look around and go, despite everything that's going on, we need to consider what, what, what God has done for us. We need to consider and be people of the communion table, God who is restored and reconciling us. And we need to consider the wild donkey. Come on. We need to consider the stupid ostrich. Like what? This is the dumbest creature ever. It doesn't even know how to care for its own young. But man, when that thing runs, it's pretty amazing, right? It's like, God, what are you on right now? I mean, like, it's just good. Have you ever been around someone who's intoxicating like with their joy, they're just sort of like, whoa, I am going through hell, but I somehow am leaving this conversation feeling a lot better. And it's not fake, and it's not smile, it's not like a, a put on smile, right? It's not some like plastic joy that like, I'm a Christian, I should be happy. No, no, it's actually birthed in honesty. It starts on a Friday and ends on a Sunday. It goes through the fire, but it knows the goodness that surrounds it. Ephesians 1, verse 7, we learn more about what God is like. For a lot of people, um, the, the idea that God is, is like a pleasure seeker or delights, I think is a reach. Would any of you say that's kind of a reach for you? Or it feels kind of foreign to say like, yeah, God's like a pleasure seeker. What in your brain goes, I don't like this church. This is not, this is not correct. I, 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 I get it. I truly understand because we're kind of sold this lens of things like delighting and joy and rejoicing and pleasure. It feels like, well, you're not, you're you're missing something. I can't wait till Andrew gets to the sin part again. Like it actually feels more comfortable. Anyone relate to that feeling? A little, a little like, a little funny? Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. God lavishes the riches of God's grace on us. And this is what Jesus has done. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. God made known to us the mystery of his will by showing us who Jesus is. It's amazing. Thanks, God. According to what? Why? According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. It was God's good pleasure. God wants to put everything back together through new creation for his pleasure. God is interested in reclaiming all of that beauty. In Christ, he's seeking pleasure. And the work of Jesus is rooted in pleasure. The work of Jesus is rooted in pleasure. God's primary posture, one writer says, towards creation is not production or consumption, but pleasure. God's desire then is for us, and we read in the Psalms, we could read all over, God wants, has a proper relationship with the earth. Uh, if you turn with me to the Psalms, it's uh, the next, next slide. Psalm 104. 
focus on this word sustain, Psalm 104, verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys back again quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. His waters, the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing food forth from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. Any poets in the room? Like, come on, the wine of God gladdens human hearts. For those of you who love to see wine and scriptures through the lens of it, it was probably grape juice. Grape juice does not <laughs> gladden your heart. <laughs> just saying. Our role, right, in this, we read just from this, this there's tons of places we could go to, to talk about this. I don't have time to go into a whole theology of like sustainable, like how we relate to the land, but I want to give you a few just pieces of seeing God's heart Proper cultivation, sustainability that gladdens our heart, that sustains us, that people like who, who God loves would live in proper, sustainable relationship with creation. That creation would feed us and feed our kids and feed our kids' kids and feed their kids. And so I'd simply argue today that we're not doing that all too well. I don't think we're doing that all too well. It's a few facts I just kind of pulled out. We're destroying roughly about an acre and a half of rainforest every year. Every year, just acre and a half of rainforest. 79% in, uh, of rivers in China, this is actually three, four years ago, are polluted. And polluted, by the way, the definition here was unfit for human contact. World Health Organization says 4.6 million people died from some air pollution-related disease in the last 10 years. Yearly, we lose about 50,000 distinct species, like plant and animal species. It's like, these are big numbers. Any given day, there's enough trash in this country for 63,000 trucks to carry. Um, and, and the holidays, we have about an extra 5 million pounds of trash. Uh, and 4 million of that is wrapping paper. Yeah. Last year, we dumped 14 billion pounds of waste into the ocean. And I say this because I think it grieves, I think it grieves God's heart. And for those of you who feel like that kind of statement feels like a, a bit of a reach, I, I just put that before you to say, what is our posture from the beginning? But God's, God's posture towards how we're to relate to the land, how uh, we're to take part in renewing and restoring and then ask questions about why do we feel entitled to sometimes do whatever we want or participate in systems that are actually not helpful. We produce 80% more trash than we did 15 years ago, and we have 80% less landfills. But that was a fun one. It was great. New mountains will form. We produce more and more and more and more. There's one that's in particularly, like, gets me... Um, <laughs> There's uh, it uses 80, I'll let you guess what it is, 80,000 tons of tree pulp, 
There's 350 million people in America disposing of this thing. Uh, it produces about 100,000 tons of trash a year, and scientists are saying it doesn't really decompose. So like 300 years from now or whatever, when we're trying to dig up like what's actually going, like what, what was it like to live in 2016? This will be one of the main things that they find. Do you know what it is? What? Styrofoam? Nope. Water bottles? Nope. I mean, it might be Keurig cups. That's, a, that's interesting. It's actually diapers. Yeah, yeah. I think we need to think through more sustainable ways to keep our babies clean, right? I was hiking in the woods the other day, and a buddy of mine uh, took his son to uh, just do a, just went and pooped in the woods, you know? Just parents. And back, and we'll keep going, right? No. <laughs> I read these things off simply because we need to open ourselves up to fresh ways of thinking. <laughs> fresh ways of thinking. And I think this is what's important. So for those of you waiting for like the like negative sin part and the thing you need to work on part of the sermon, this, you'll like this part. Just real basic observations of like why we would be in this sort of mess and whether it relates to creation, whether it relates to how we deal with one another and specifically, especially and primarily how it is that we relate to God. Why are we in the mess that we're in? I think there's two things to think about. One is exploitation. Exodus 5, you get the story of, of God um, speaking with these first these first people, these people that were called to be a blessing to the world who are under the oppression of Pharaoh and they find themselves in captivity. And in uh, Exodus 5.10, we're getting a picture of what's going on. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? We see on a systemic level the distortion of human relationships. Right, how do you feel when someone uses you? How do you feel when you're actually exploited by someone, whether in a really small relational sense or in a larger way? Right, you have fellow human beings treating each other in this text like slaves. And none of this like, surprises us, not just because we know about this story, but because this is still so much of the story of the world. We exploit one another and we oppress one another. And then we blame the other side for being the only culpable part in it. Deep in the human story and the human heart is the destructive bend to use people and things for our own purposes. And then we leave them worse off than they were at first. God created us for shalom, for this wholeness and peace. And we bend it and we take it in directions that it was never meant to go. Leviticus 23, as we sort of land this here. So if the first word to, to kind of zero in on is exploitation, I think part of the reason we're in this place is we see exploitation, we see it happen then and it breaks off into these larger systems that we participate in these things like, all right, great, so there's a diaper problem. Like, what am I supposed to do about that? Okay, so I could recycle a little bit more. Is that actually helping anything? 
Like, what does it mean for us to like really participate in, in, in helping creation better? And, and, and how do I delight with joy over all the things that God's doing in the world when I know that I am prone to participating in systems that exploit or being someone who's exploitive myself? And this is the second thing that I think for us is, is big. And in Leviticus 23, we see this. The land, this is, we talked about this text. Uh, sorry, Leviticus 25, 23. We talked about this text last week. These are some of the, the laws given to these first people. The land was not to be sold permanently because the land is mine. This is God talking. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. So much more we could say about this. But God is just like, hey, 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 it's mine. I made the world and I said it was good and I put you in this world, it says in Genesis, to be proper stewards of creation. To be good rulers over, to steward it, that it would flourish, that it would sustain, that you would delight in it, that it would be a joy, that you'd have bread for everyone, that the wine would gladden your hearts, that you'd be people of joy. And so as Easter people, we are taking part in, in, in uh, renewing and reconciling um, and uh, I, I should say, um, reminding ourselves that we cannot fall prey to entitlement. So part of the problem is exploitation. I think the other part of the problem is entitlement. 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 Following Jesus means we simply live with less. That we are people that are reminded that all that we have and even the capacity to create, build, make, all of that comes from God in the first place. And when we're people that see the world through the lens of grace and gift and not entitlement, then it changes how we relate to people. It deeply changes how we relate to God. That's why we worship. And it, and it changes how we relate to our environment because if our posture is it's ours, we can do whatever the heck we want with it. It's ours. We will do whatever we want with it. God gave the world to us, and we're just going to go. We can see how things like personal sin make their way into larger systems and exploit. We can see how people develop a larger cultural sense of entitlement. I will do. I will determine. I get to decide. And God simply comes alongside us and says, no, 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 no. This is my good world. I'm going to show you what it is to flourish in it and you can trust that or not, but it doesn't change the truth. We could be talking about so many different things right now, right? Right, we could be talking about so many different issues. We could be asking questions about how we think about our money. We could be asking questions about what we're doing in terms of what we're consuming and what we buy. We could be asking questions about our sexuality. We could be asking questions uh, about how we actually steward the gifts that God's given us in the vision and creation of our world around us. We could be asking all sorts of different questions about what it means to operate in this world. And if we are to be people who are not entitled, but see the world as a gift, we see the grace of God in the gift that he's given the gift that he's given in his son for God's love, the world that he gave, God's fundamental posture towards us is generosity, is giving, and then welcoming and join, allowing us to join in in the work that he is doing in that. Then we are to be people of joy and pleasure seekers, people who delight, people who are not exploitive and are not entitled, the people who are generous and lay down our life for those around us, people who are actively asking questions of what does it mean to live more simply, 
What does it mean to be free of all the trappings of the stuff that, that, that participate, um, that, that are involved in creating all of these negative things around us, these larger systems of pollution and, 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 and the, the hurting of our earth and all the facts that we could all sit here and run down. We have an opportunity. This is our joy as Easter people to say, actually, it's not a fad. As much as we can learn from scientists, as much as we could jump on like the green train and all the good things that government can do, we as followers of Jesus, that's not why, right? This is what frustrates me sometimes about, about my, 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 my love of the church. It's what frustrates me is like, we never needed scientists to like, I mean, it's helpful to realize like, I guess the state that we're in, but if we'd been living in harmony with the world around us and with our creation and sustainable, I just read like ancient Jewish poetry to you not like the latest study on global warming, right? We do this because God made the world good and we get to, and we get to, and we get to, we get to participate in the renewal and the restoration of it. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. I think there's all sorts of things I don't have time to talk about of how this actually then feeds in to a richer, more full life when we simplify, when we clean things away, when we ask questions about where our food comes from and all that stuff. This isn't meant to heap a bunch of guilt. This is to say that everything matters. It all belongs. And so then what's the next step? What's just the next thing that we can do to move away from a posture of entitlement, to move away from the places where we are either actively or passively exploiting and step into um, the life of, of heaven. Man, there's so much more we could say. But I wanna end with this, just a reading from the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of Jesus's most um, kind of famous passages, speeches. And we get an image, we're getting an image here of what this resurrection people are to live like. So we should probably pay attention. We should probably ask, okay, okay, uh, what does it mean for me to trust that I am loved, set free, and forgiven to step into this kind of life? How can I confront in a really simple, like day-to-day -day way, systems of entitlement and exploitation? How can I trust that this is my father's world like this is, this is God's world. He made it. And live with a posture of humility and grace and gratitude and joy toward it. The old hymn, this is my father's world. And talk about let my heart be glad. And rocks and trees. And it just kind of goes off in this same language of scripture. This joy of like, this is where we start from. So Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where, whatever you value, that's where your heart will be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, this is a Jewish um, kind of phrase, euphemism, it's eye is about... Um, what you do with your money. It's like greed or generosity. Like your life can be dictated by greed or generosity. If someone said you have a good eye, this is a very Hebrew way of saying you're a generous person. 
Right? And if you have a greedy eye, this is a way of, if you have a bad eye, this is a way of saying you're, you're a, a, a greedy person. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If you're focused on generosity. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, I mean, if you're like, that would be nice to not do that, right? We just run over this. Like, don't, don't worry about, don't. Don't worry about your body, what you wear. Is not life more than food and body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, Add a single hour to your life. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the father of the field fields, see how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. With your consumption in check. You care about the goodness of creation. You're growing towards what it is to be people who are living simply. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Are we known for life? Are we known as people of shalom? It will cost us something. And I think our culture is looking for people who sacrifice for a greater cause. And people are looking for, to followers of Jesus, for the church to be this, this colony of heaven that's more and more asking these questions about what it means to participate. Particularly today, we're focusing on, on the renewal of creation. We're going to send out a couple things this week online, really practical tips of ways you can do that. Like just simple, simple things that you can do around your house. Simple things you can do with how you're... We're not just like spending habits, but things like helping the environment, everything from like really, really sexy stuff like light bulbs, you know, recycling. Yeah, give it up for light bulbs. What are we? <laughs> Properly inflate your tires. Right? Anyone know what I'm talking about? There you go. <laughs> anyway, it's <laughs> a funny way to end a sermon. But, you know, I think that's kind of the point. If you let me go for like 30 more seconds. <laughs> I, it's really, in the Hebrew scriptures, like everything is spiritual. There's not, like, a, there's not, we've said this before, there's not a Hebrew word for spiritual. Your spiritual life is your physical life. They're deeply tied together. It's all wrapped up into one. You are physical embodied people. It's what Barrett actually prayed over us during our liturgy this morning. Everything you do, participates in the world in, 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 a, in a good or bad way. That God gives and outlines like what it means to walk the way of life before our flourishing, that we would participate in the life of heaven here. And now we are not just angels. It matters. It matters. 
So my hope is, as we come to the communion table today, as we remember this generous God and his giving of his son, as we remember, if you're here, like, and you've, you, you don't know like, or don't trust that you are loved by God, that Christ has died on the cross for your sins, that he is reconciling in some mysterious way everything through the cross, that this picture of his body broken, which is the bread, and his blood poured out, which is the cup, this great image and act of love. If you're unaware of, of, of what, um, or, or you're not someone who trusts that story about what's happening in the world, it makes it um, a bit difficult to then have a posture of gratitude and grace for the world. I encourage you, encourage all of us today as we come and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup, that we would be reminded of this generous God who delights over us, who pours himself out and breaks himself open for our healing and for the healing of the world. And that that flow, that movement of love, that, that place, that part in the story that we're, we're in, we get to join with God in that. That as we take the bread and dip it in the cup, there would be a moment of, of like thanksgiving and rejoicing for all that God has given. That as we come to the table, we would be reminded of the God who is a pleasure seeker, who because of his good and his good pleasure, because he delights over us in all of creation, he sent his son, he's made the ostrich and the wild donkey. <laughs> that all of the goodness that we see around us can only belong to God. I hope is that we would leave here, no matter what place we're actually in, recognizing the joy that it is to participate in God's good world. So, let me pray. God, we want to move um, away from exploitation to integration. We want to move, Lord, away from entitlement and toward humility and grace. God, I pray as we come to the table that we would see um, and know in our own hearts He delight over us. He sing over us, it says, Lord, songs of, of love. That we would be people of celebration, not consumption. People of pleasure, Lord, not production. And you'd inspire us, Lord, as a community to move, Lord, closer to the colony of heaven, the Easter people, the life raisers that you've called us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.